You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning. So today's scripture is going to be from Acts 7, 9 through 16. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were were brought back to... Shechem, and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor. (laughs) I wish I could get Andrew to say these for me. Shechem, for a certain sum of money. All right, let's end that. (laughs) Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our family here. Uh, Thank you for all of the things that you're doing in our life. We pray that... um, We learn to trust you, Lord, learn to trust you more through all the seasons and all the things that we go through. So, Lord, help us with that. Uh, Please go before us this week, and please be with Andrew here as he speaks with us today. Amen. Um, So, today I want to just ask if you have ever heard the expression, you can't put God in a box. Anybody heard that expression before? Okay. Okay. So what do you guys think? What, what does that expression mean? You can't put God in a box. Anybody have an idea? Say, say again. You cannot limit him. That's good. Anybody want to add anything to that? You can't describe him. That, that's good. Like it, he, you can't confine him to human language, right? Uh, anybody else? Go ahead, Smiley. His, yeah, his presence is, is everywhere. Absolutely. Great. Great. So all of those are, go ahead, Kathy. Right. You can't control him either. Right? Yeah, exactly. Anybody else? Go ahead, Ed. Amen. Yeah, this is good. Tim in the back. You can't contain him. You can't contain him. Anybody else? Right, so we, we've touched on a couple of things that I, I had thought of too, right? When we think about that phrase, you can't put God in a box, part of what we mean, and, and Smiley had this point really, is it's almost in a literal way, right? Like you, you can't confine him to a location. That's one thing you can't do with God. A lot of times people uh, mean something more than that. Like they, they mean that you can't confine him to your own expectations, Right. In fact, God, and, and a couple of you, who said that with, was without limits? I can't remember who said what now. <clears throat> but you can't, conf- you, he is not confined by anything other than his character. Right. 
He's always going to act in accordance with his character, right? He's always going to do what's good and right because he can't deny himself, right? Otherwise, he would cease to be God. But other than that, nothing else confines God except for his character, right? Because God is God. Another way to talk about this is to say that God is free. Um, And the psalmist in Psalm 115.3 says it this way. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases, right? And so one of the things that Stephen is going to be reminding the Sanhedrin of in our passage is that God is free, right? He has shown throughout the history of redemption that he can bring about his redemption in unexpected places, and he can bring about his redemption in unexpected ways, Right? And so our job then is to submit to his deliverance. So one of the things I want us to be asking ourselves as we go along, and I'm, I'm kind of leaning into the spirit right now that, that God would speak to each individual heart as you think about this question, how am I putting God in a box? So we're kind of walking our way through Stephen's speech that he gives in response to the Sanhedrin who have uh, uh, been listening to these false accusations brought by the, the Hellenists that are in some ways like partially true, but not really understanding what's going on, that type of a thing. But if you remember the charges, right, the charges against Stephen are that he is blaspheming against God and that he's blaspheming against God's Law, And then as you go along, you begin to learn, okay, what they're really talking about is that he's blaspheming against the temple because they've almost put an equal sign between God and the temple. He's blaspheming against the temple and he's blaspheming against the customs of Moses, which I think in their mind has to do more with those national identity markers such as circumcision or Sabbath keeping or dietary laws, this type of thing. So Stephen's message right, is uh, coming against these things that they hold so dear. Because what does the gospel proclaim? The gospel proclaims that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system at the temple, and Jesus predicted that the temple would one day be destroyed. Now, one thing that we noted last time that we were together was that Stephen's response is kind of interesting in the sense that he does not directly answer these charges. But what he does instead is in this more indirect way, he takes the whole situation and the charges, and then he puts them within the context of God's history of redemption, what God has done to save his people, all culminating to the cross of Christ. And so what Stephen is doing is he's kind of, he's gonna, you'll, you'll see it throughout the speech. He's going he's gonna to do it in a variety of ways, but he's kind of hitting on two points. He's going to show two things, right? One thing that he points out over and over again is that, look, guys, we have a long history as Israel right, of rejecting God's representatives, right? And he's going to show that over and over again with different figures throughout the history of redemption. The second thing that he's going to point out, and he's going to show, and you kind of have ears to hear to see what he's doing here, but he's going to show that God is free, right? 
He is not confined to a location. He is not confined to your expectations. He is not confined to a box in Jerusalem called the temple. Now, he may dwell there in a special kind of way, but his presence transcends all of that. Now, what, what he does right at the beginning and what we covered last time is he says, let's go all the way back to the father of Israel, Abraham. And what we find there is that our whole history begins with God calling him out of an unexpected location. Remember that? In Mesopotamia, a dark place, a pagan place, a demonic place, an idolatrous place, right? His ancestors worshipped idols there, right? So he points that out. And God, in his glory, met Abraham there, right? And then he shows that he called them out. He gave them a promise of the land, right? But the descendants never lived in that land, right? They were sojourners, Right? The, the earth was not their home. They were looking for a, a city whose builder and designer was God, a heavenly city that was to come. So, you know, he's, he's kind of uh, showing them. He's already messing with some of the presuppositions that they're dealing with, right? The stories by which they were understanding everything else. He's like, you got it partly right, but not exactly right. Right? God is not confined in the way that you think he is confined. Right? And so what he's going to do now, he, he focused first on Abraham, and then he's going to shift our attention now to another biblical figure in Joseph. And he's going to do the same sort of thing, like, but just like another layer of this overall message. And he's going to show through the story of Joseph that God's saving action in history, God's saving action in our own lives is not confined by a location. Right? We're going to talk about that. That'll be our first point. It's not confined by our expectations. That's our second point. And then therefore, like we are not the ones who determine how God delivers, but we submit to his deliverance. And that's what we'll talk about at the end of the message We'll be thinking about, okay, how do we respond to all of this by submissive faith? And, that, and, and we'll talk about how that transforms us. So let's first talk about how God is not confined to a, a location. It can be really easy to sort of um, overly associate God's saving action with a location. Like it's not only the Israelites that can be guilty of this. Right, sometimes, and maybe you can think through your own Christian walk, and I've already talked to somebody who was like, man, yeah, I actually did kind of go through a season of this, right? Where you, let's say that God really worked in your life in a certain location, right? And sometimes what you'll find, I've heard stories about this too, where it's like, man, God really worked in this specific location, and sometimes what that translates into is you don't want the physical appearance of that location to change, Right, and so you hear these stories uh, from people from different churches, like, and then s some committee decides to cover up my favorite stained glass window, right? And you're really upset about it, or they take a picture down, or they paint a wall, or they change the carpet, and you're like, no, do not. This is what this is where God works, right? And you can't change it, right? And uh, even in the history of Enclave, and this was before my time. So if I get some of the details wrong, you can uh, explain that to me. And also, don't blame me for this, right? <laughs> uh, 
uh, in the history of Enclave, uh, evidently behind the screen where the screen is now, there used to be a picture. Do you remember? Were you here for this? When Jesus was like a shepherd and he had like a sheep draped across his shoulder. You ever seen a picture like that? Well, then guess what they did? They painted over it, right? And then they put a screen in front of it. Imagine a screen in front of Jesus, right? Um, and so, you know, and then people got, they got upset about that, right? And I understand, like, uh, a sentiment of something or are having something that reminds you of God's work, but there's this shift. There's this shift that can happen in your heart, and it's very, very subtle, Right, where maybe you begin with the acknowledgement like, man, God is, is working with this people in this place in a very special way. Right? And it issues forth in this attitude of praise where you're like, man, praise God that he is doing that. And that, that's really healthy and good. Right? But then it, it can shift. And then you can begin to say like, I don't really think God is working this way anywhere else though. Like, he seems to only be doing this, this here, I think, right? And then you can have, like, your attitude then becomes like this attitude of maybe arrogance or, or maybe jealousy that God might be working in other places. But then there's another shift that can happen, goes even further, where you begin to struggle with distinguishing between God and a place where you saw God work. And, and then your attitude becomes one of protection. I need to guard this place and my role in this place, right? Almost as like an act of worship. And then it's those things that were good then become idolatrous. And may God guard our heart. Right? Because I'm definitely at the first stage here at Enclave where I'm like, man, God is doing something special among these people and in this place. Praise God. I don't want my heart to shift in these other directions. So may God guard my heart and your heart against that. Right? And the reason why I bring all of this up is because in this passage, right, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Hellenists, they have def their hearts and minds have definitely made this shift with regards to these national identity markers and the temple and their role in the temple, right? These things have become things that they worshiped, right? And part of what Stephen is doing, right, for those who have ears to hear through the story of Joseph is to say, God is not confined in those kinds of ways. And he does it in a couple of ways. He points out how the patriarchs, one thing he does, he points out that the patriarchs were saved in Egypt, in Egypt. And then he talks about how they were buried in Samaria. So the children of Jacob were saved in Egypt, buried in Samaria. Notice I didn't say Israel in any of those sentences, right? And so if you look in the passage, and we should go to the next slide here, six times, right? Egypt is mentioned in seven verses because Stephen is trying to get the point across God works in other places other than Israel, right? In verse 9, it says that God was with Joseph. Where? In Egypt. So, so God's presence is not confined to the temple. Where did the patriarchs in this story 
experience salvation, right? Later, they're going to be delivered out of Egypt, right? Because God does different things at different times. This is part of the point that's being made. But in this time, where was salvation found? In Egypt, right? From God's representative in Egypt, they were saved from a famine. So you see what Stephen's doing? He's through this story of Joseph. He's saying, look, uh, you're all bent out of shape uh, 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 about like you, you, Jesus said that the temple will one day be destroyed and you just can't imagine God working without the temple. But God has worked without the temple before, right? God is not confined to a location, right? So the, the patriarchs were saved in Egypt before they were saved out of Egypt. And then they were buried in Samaria. And then Stephen does something pretty interesting in verse 15 and 16. He, he points them or reminds them to an extra biblical tradition, right, that stated that the sons of Jacob were buried, and it's very important for an ancient person to know where their uh, uh, ancestors were buried, okay? They were buried in what is now a Samaritan city at the base of Mount Gerizim called Shechem. Now, that is probably lost on, I mean, it was lost on me completely. I'm just like, okay, I mean, how many times have I read that verse? Like 20 times, you know, it, it had no impact on me. But remember, he's talking to people who know. The Sanhedrin know about this, right? And what's the significance of Shechem? Well, there's several ways in which it's significant, right? For one, Shechem is the place where Abraham, for the first time, worshipped Yahweh and built an altar there to Yahweh in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. That enters into the whole discussion of like, you know, hey, we can only worship God at the temple. He only works at the temple, right? So he's bringing that into, into the discussion. And then on top of that, there was this big debate between the Samaritans and the Jews with regard to, okay, where is it most proper that we might, you know, where we would worship Yahweh? And the Jews said, you got to worship Yahweh on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, right? And the Samaritans said, well, we've built a temple on Mount Gerizim. Because Abraham built an altar there to worship Yahweh. And then Jacob, in Genesis chapter 33, also built an altar there. To worship Yahweh. And so he's, he's like stirring up stuff now, okay? Now Jesus actually spoke into this debate, if you remember, in a location very near the ruins of Shechem, right, to a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And he says this, beginning in uh, uh, a little bit into verse 21, he says, woman, believe me, this is Jesus speaking, the hour is, is coming when neither on this mountain, like you can see it from where he's standing, this mountain, Mount Gerizim, uh, upon which the Samaritans are, have built a temple, they will neither worship on this mountain or, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then later on in verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Right. And so Stephen's saying, you guys are all bent out of shape about Jesus because you confine his saving activity 
to a location. But remember our forefathers, right? The founding fathers of Israel. They were saved in Egypt. They were buried in Samaria, right? And that all anticipates where the, the book of Acts is going, right? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And, okay, now, just I've mentioned this before, just remember... <laughs> Stephen is coming up with this on the fly as the Holy Spirit leads him as he's drugged before the Sanhedrin. Right? It takes me all week to just like find out like some of these things, right? And I've never noticed them before. And he's just, the Spirit's with him, and boom, you know, like that. And, 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 and that's exactly the word they needed to hear, and they could hear it, right? Because they have all that cultural background. So, so first point, God is not confined to a location. <clears throat> Have you put God in a box? Have you put God in a box? Second point. God is not confined to our expectations. So, so just as easy as it is to over-associate God's saving activity with a location, it is equally as easy to begin to believe that God can only work according to your expectations. Right? The, the way that you've seen him work before. Right? But maybe God, maybe God wants to show you something new. Right? His deliverance is always going to happen on the basis of Jesus' work, right? his person and his work. It's always going to come to you by way of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's always going to be in accordance with his character. But it changes in the way that it comes to different people as it is applied by the Holy Spirit. Right? So it doesn't have to happen in accordance with our expectations. Right? And, and, and when you think about how this applies to this speech that Stephen has given to the San, Sanhedrin, right? there are people in the Sanhedrin who had certain expectations with regard to the Messiah. What's interesting is that the Sadducees didn't have expectations for the Messiah, at least for the most part, but the rest of them did and the rest of the population did. But was Jesus the kind of, the kind of Messiah they were expecting? No, they were looking for someone to conquer Rome. And, and, and so Je since Jesus does not fit their expectations, they don't regard him as worthy as reconsidering their relationship to the temple and the law. Right? But then what Stephen does by bringing up the Joseph story is that it makes you think, well, maybe we ought to have expected a deliverer like Jesus. Right? Because Joseph is like, he's like a pattern. Right? He's a foreshadowing. He, he's a type of the Christ. Right? And there's all these parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus' life. So, for example, both of them are rejected and handed over because of jealousy. Right? So, in verse 9 of our passage, it says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Right now, when you think about Jesus, 
Was Jesus sold out? He was sold out by Judas, 30 pieces of silver. He was rejected. He came to his own. They rejected him. And then what uh, uh, Pilate perceives in Mark chapter 15, verse 10, is that the Jewish leaders handed him over out of what? Envy or jealousy. So there's that, there's that similarity there. It's, it's gonna be, there's going to be more. <laughs> then there's another parallel. They are both uh, um, unjustly afflicted and thrown into a pit. So when Joseph, he, remember, he goes into Egypt, right? Then he's falsely accused by who? Potiphar's wife, and he's thrown into where? He's thrown into a dungeon or a jail. And the word, now the word that Joseph use, uses to describe the jail in Genesis chapter 40, verse 15, is the word pit. Which is significant because it, it recalls when the, the brothers threw him into a cistern, which is the same word. But in the Bible, it can also be used of a metaphor, as a metaphor of the grave. So like in Psalm 30, verse 3, it's in poetic parallelism with Sheol and the grave. Right, so Joseph is falsely accused and thrown into a pit, and because it's a jail, it's a sealed pit. Okay? You think about Jesus. Was Jesus falsely accused? Yes. Notice how all these patterns are also true of Stephen. There's a, there's a lot going on, okay? And, and, so he, and you think about Jesus. He's falsely accused. He's put in a grave, and the grave is sealed. And so there's that, that parallel. But then it continues. <clears throat> then God delivers both of them from the pit and exalts them to a place of power. Right, so in verse 10, it says this of, regarding Joseph. And God, quote, rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him uh, favor and wisdom. Same used words of, used of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, but we're not going to even go there. Before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. So Joseph is delivered from the pit and exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 41. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 5, Peter explains that Jesus is exalted from the grave in his resurrection. But he's rescued from the grave and then exalted to the right hand of God the Father. So that's another parallel. But then it goes further. Then both of them use their exalted authority to deliver. Right, right. So, so Joseph, right, and, and you, you know, his brothers come. How is he going to use his exalted authority to deliver them? That's the most surprising part about the Joseph story. He uses his authority to deliver them, right, out of, out of a famine. And not just them, the whole world. And it makes you think about John chapter 10 when Jesus says, there are sheep that are not of this flock. 
And then Peter says this in Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Of Jesus, God exalted him. That is Jesus at the right hand as leader, as exalted king and savior. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, neither Joseph nor Jesus were the deliverer that God's people expected. <laughs> Nobody is this smart, guys. Like, this is the spirit working through Stephen. He had no prep time, right? And, and he's giving all this out. And, and he's saying, like, you guys, you, you can't confine God's saving activity to your expectations. He will save as he wills. And he will even use the affliction of his enemies to save his enemies from their affliction. And it's plan A. It is not plan B. Uh, uh, Psalm 105, 16 and following. It says... God sent the famine. And he sent Joseph ahead of it. It's plan A. Right? And, jo and Joseph recognizes it. Right? He explains to the brothers who are very afraid, as they should be, right? Like they're the ones who threw him in the first pit. And he says, no, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and the salvation of many. And then when you think about what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, regarding the crucifixion, it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's plan A. God is not, his saving activity is not confined to our expectations. Have you been putting God in a box? It's not our job, right, to dictate to God how he ought to deliver us or how he ought to deliver other people. Our job is to submit to his deliverance and then experience his transformation from that deliverance. And that brings me to our third and final point. God's deliverance demands a faith response and it will bring about a transformation. It demands a faith response in both Joseph's case and in Jesus' case, right? right? Joseph is handing out, he's got food in the midst of a famine because God told him about it. Right? Oh gosh, it reminds you of John 5, doesn't it? But he told him about it, right? And so but they still have to go to Egypt to receive it. Right? They could have sent home like, I don't, I don't, we'll just die here. Right? And then Joseph would give them over to what they wanted. Right? <clears throat> Same way with Jesus. He holds himself out as the bread of life in John chapter 6. But you still have to receive him as the bread of life. You come to God's deliverer to, to receive deliverance. And in so doing, you also submit to his lordship. Right? What did the patriarchs do? They move. They go live under the reign of the deliverer. 
the loving reign of the deliverer who provides for them. And in the same way, we come to Jesus to live under his loving reign. And then that transforms you. When you go to God's deliverer and receive his deliverance, you become like the deliverer. And you see that right in the life of Stephen, who's becoming like Jesus, right? The, the New Testament teaches, right, that we will, if you follow Jesus, one thing you have to know, right, people ask me all the time, if, if, I, if I come to Jesus, will my life get better? Kind of depends on what you mean by better, Right? Because part of what it means is that you will share in his suffering, right? You, 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 Jesus, it's not a surprise, right? Jesus told us this in Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 12. Joseph went through that. Stephen's going through that. All of us will, will go through that. We share in his suffering. But the other thing that the New Testament teaches us is that it will be worth it. God, God doesn't just put you in the tumbler of suffering and say, right, I'll, I'll be back in about 30 minutes when all that's done. No, no, he, he is with you in it. Verse 9 says that God was with Joseph in Egypt. He was with him in the jail cell. God was with him the whole time. You think about Jesus' commissioning. Right? Go make disciples, right? What does he say at the end of the commissioning? Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And on top of that, our suffering, so Joseph, Jesus, the apostles talk about this, our suffering benefits others. So that means that our suffering isn't wasted insignificant, meaningless. No, it's not. If you're following Jesus, it can be used to benefit others. Uh, Shannon and I were talking this past week, and she's given me permission to share a little bit with you guys about, like she, she's gone through a lot of childhood trauma, okay? And that, that has showed up as adulthood depression, that she's been working through, and she's seen some deliverance in that. Right? And she goes back and forth between, you know, like, why did this happen? Why, did this have to happen? And, like, she has all the questions that we would have. But she keeps coming back, back to this point and saying, you know what? Like, this, this God is going to use this, my story, to come alongside other people with similar stories. And there's, there's going to be a solidarity there that cannot exist without the suffering. There's a oneness there. There's a reconciliation there, a deliverance there. And it, it will all be worth it. And in the end, see, Shannon is becoming like Jesus. And I've seen it, Shannon. She's becoming like her deliverer because she goes to God, the deliverer. And then in the end, I'm going to tell you something about what's going to happen to Shannon in the end. She is going to be so exalted 
that if she were to enter into this room in her exalted state, we would have to cover our eyes because of her brightness. And she will reign with Jesus forever. And this is the testimony of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. If you share in the suffering of Jesus, you will reign with Jesus. This is the testimony of the Apostle John in Revelation 22, 5. We will reign with Jesus if you are united to Jesus. And I love that part, um, Nick, your wife, Kim. Is she here today? Oh, she's upstairs? Okay. There was this moment in, in the New to Enclave class. You know, we're talking about the theological foundations of everything that we do. And we talk, you have, Jesus went to the pit, rescued out of the pit, exalted to the right hand of God the Father. We join him in his death, and then we are exalted and reign with Jesus. And Kim said, man, it's, it's almost blasphemous. Like, to think that, that we would share in all the rights and privileges of Jesus? I mean, Jesus deserves it. We don't, we don't deserve that. Right? And the, all of heaven is, is going, what, what in the world is going on? Right? Like the, the revelation of the sons of God? It's, I, I mean, you did that with Ed? You, you did that with Kelly, Darcy? You did that with Jen? You did that with Jay? You did that with Andrew? Like he's, the, you know, and you're like, ah. I mean, all you could do is just lay your crowns down at Jesus' feet, right? And, and it's just, but see that, oh, God delights to do it, right? To exalt his son. And so what he's doing in the story of Joseph, there's a lot going on. But what he's doing is he's reminding them, he's reminding us, look, God is not confined to a location. His saving action isn't confined to a location. His saving action isn't confined to your expectations. He isn't confined to my expectations. Have you been putting God in a box? And maybe, and I'm praying that God will reveal to you in what ways you have. Not so you can feel bad, because God's right there. As you're fiddling with that box, you know, he's right there going, turn to me. Turn to me. I'm bigger than that box. Are you kidding me? Receive everything I have to give to you. you. You can't put God in a box, but you can trust him for deliverance. He will deliver us from all of our afflictions in his own way and in his own time. Right? And when you embrace these truths by the Spirit in your heart, it will help focus your attention on the glory of King Jesus, and it will guard your heart from idolizing a church building. A church building? 
a location, a, a ministry method, right? a program, or, or anything that you can think of, some idea about how God ought to deliver. It will guard our hearts about that. No, he's the deliverer. He delivers wherever he wants, however he wants. He is God, and we are not. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the testimony of your word, the cloud of witnesses that went before us who all testify to you, our great God and King. And Lord, I just pray that you would move in us, that you would give us a compelling vision, God, of, of who you are, that we would gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.